0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which digs a little deeper into the best of the food books. This week I'm with Kalpner Wolf. Founder of the Bristol charity 91 Ways, which brings together the 91 languages spoken in her hometown to eat together at a series of pop-up peace cafes.
1: We have 91 language communities. We want every one of them to know about each other. So we'll take Somali women or uh, women from Eritrea and people from India, uh, Muslims and Hindus to uh, another part of Bristol to meet to you know the Jewish group, uh, Mal- Palestinian, and so on. That is the idea.
0: She holds the Guild of food writers inspiration award bbc's food and farming food hero award and the asian woman of achievement award her book eat share love features just some of the recipes from the cultures from all over the world which shared the tables at 91 ways and for her is the most important thing she's ever done Which is really saying something. Before she retired and became one of the 20 people listed by Waitrose Food Magazine's Making the World a Better Place to Live and Eat in 2020, she was head of production for Factual and Natural History at the BBC, overseeing all the best in TV storytelling, including Frozen Planet, Planet Earth, and TV chefs from Rick Stein and Nigel Slater to the Hairy Bikers. Now, this is a story of storytelling that I argue in my book, Taste and the TV Chef, is one of the most powerful TV ever told and created British food culture in the 1990s. I asked her if she sees
1: it that way. I think what we've had from Nigella and Nigel Slater and the Harry Bikers is that we've, we've seen new trends in food. Um, they, they've taught us a lot about food, actually. You know, Nigella, she brings her lovely Italian food, her love of, you know really sumptuous food that's what she is isn't she everything's very rich and it's very giving and I think that and that dinner party spirit that she brings that's definitely I think it's influenced how we eat and how we share food Um, and with Nigel Slater there's a real simplicity there and a real he thinks such a lot about food so he makes us think Uh, before we eat uh, and also think about what we use where the food comes from and with the hairy bikers you know they're fun Uh, they're fun they're very good with people and they're always back to basics in terms of food but also who we are and I and I, I think we've learned a lot from those chefs yeah what I particularly love about
0: British food culture is that it is so full of story And that's what your book is all about. It's the stories of immigrants and they come from their lands often through you know very difficult circumstances but they hold their food close and it's that that i think has made british food so interesting why
1: don't we see that on the bbc i think we need to see uh, britain as it is Uh, you're right you know british food culture isn't just what we often see it is all of the uh, cultures that we have you know britain we're so lucky in in britain you know it's such a diverse country. And not only is it diverse, but it's embraced so many food cultures. I mean, if you go to other countries, it's not always the same. Uh, But here, you know, you've got Indian food, you know, our, our high streets are stuffed full of different food cultures. And we love it, Yeah, we don't see that so much on the TV. We see that more as a side thing, which is a bit of a shame because I think that doesn't represent who we are. It doesn't represent how we eat either, because our homes also are full of spices. They're full of different types of foods from different parts of the world. And, uh, you know, we love eating it and we love talking about it too and sharing it.
0: Yeah, and we do. And of course, the thing about global food is that it shows the stories behind the headlines. So, you know, we're right in the middle of an unfolding story of Ukraine. Uh, It's so important, isn't it, to remember what the food and the music and the people are like in these countries. And food is a fantastic way in. This is what your book is all about. You know, we hear about Somali uh, refugees, we hear about Syrian refugees, we hear about the Kurdish Turks. All of those are headlines. But what you've done is you've, you work with the people, you break bread with them tell
1: us what you were trying to
0: do with the book
1: What I wanted to do with Eat, Share, Love is to tell the stories behind the people that we may see uh, in in our cities, but we don't know anything about, really. You're absolutely right. It's about we may only know about the headlines. We might also only know a little bit about them. But actually, everybody has a story to tell. And that story tells you not just about them, but it tells you about their entire culture their heritage, their identity, and often their country's history. And I really wanted to find a way of sharing that, because I believe when we share that, we share who we are, but we also share, uh, we make connections. And for me, it's making those connections. I believe the world will be a better place if we understand each other. So how do we understand each other? Food is such a great gateway to understanding each other and the stories around our food the memories the uh the moments uh, of either of joy or the moments of sadness and moments of struggle the moments of ritual the moments of feasting all those moments are associated with our food those moments put together are who we are
0: yeah and you know it sounds a bit
1: flip sometimes to say
0: oh let's just sit down and break bread and 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 forget all our differences and you know all the different languages the different cultures but actually you know I was talking to Yasmin Khan recently for her book Ripe Figs and she was going to refugee camps in Lesbos and and talking to people who have been through hell and back but sitting down and eating And telling stories of, not necessarily of the hell, but of the old country and life and memories, you know, it brings them back to life. It is what they do. And a lot of the stories that she came across was uh, restaurants and people who were working hard to facilitate that, to make people feel like human beings again by eating it's so far from flip isn't it is that what you were trying to do with 91 ways
1: it's absolutely what we're trying to do with 91 ways um it's such a great a catalyst food is see i believe that you know sharing a plate of food with somebody is such a great act of kindness when you offer a plate of food to someone they will always take it and when they take it and enjoy it. They're actually opening their heart to you. And once you they open their heart to you, they start talking. The catalyst of food is what uh, can open and trigger up those memories as well. And then also, that's when people start speaking. So you offer a plate of food to somebody, it's a great act of kindness. That kindness leads to people opening their hearts to you. And that's when you hear the real stories. That's when people tell you who they are and what th- what means the most to them.
0: Yeah. I mean, this started off with you realising that there were 91 languages spoken in your home city of Bristol. That's astonishing. That's mind-blowing. Obviously, a lot of those people had just come to Bristol and didn't speak enough English how were you able to communicate how were you able to get those stories presumably there wasn't an interpreter around
1: how did it work there are ninety one languages spoken in Bristol. Yes, I couldn't believe it. Because although there are you know, Bristol is a diversity, you wouldn't always know that. Uh, people live in their own areas, they're quite siloed, like most cities, and people are just getting on with their everyday work. Yeah, we don't speak ninety one languages, but I really wanted to find a way of Bridging divides. I wanted to find a way of making connections. So I chose the thing that is a universal language, and that's food. We all eat, we all understand it, we do it every day, and also it means so much to us. It means who we are but it also means life to us too, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Physically, it was at peace cafes that people would
0: come together. Tell us about the first one when you decided to set that up. How many people came? Where did they come from? What did it look like? Where was it?
1: I wanted to create a space for people to come and just sit together uh, and make genuine connections. So uh, I thought, OK, let's have a, uh, a peace cafe. So I set up Bristol's first international peace cafe. And basically what that meant was we opened the doors and we said, here is a peace cafe. Come and eat. Free food. Uh, We just put uh, long tables out, everybody, and we put lots of food and everybody just shared food. They passed big platters of food around, they came and talked. It's a safe space for people just to come and chat. There is nothing, we don't want anything from people, we're not expecting anything. We care for people and we create an atmosphere for them to feel welcome and they can chat or they can just sit and eat. And just feel like they're part of something. So the first one we did was at the station in Bristol. And we thought, oh, maybe, you know, 20, 30 people will come through the doors. Because we weren't sure if people wanted this. We weren't sure, actually, is this what people wanted? But actually 185 people came through the doors. I couldn't believe it. And for me, what that meant was actually I was right people do want this. They want to find ways of connecting. They want to find ways of telling their story because they feel that maybe nobody's interested in their story. But if they could voice their story, if they could share it, they know that they can make connections, they can make friendships. That's so important. Bristol's a small city. Yeah. And it's so important that people feel part of it. And this is a great way of feeling part of it. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that has to do with Bristol. Bristol is quite an
0: extraordinary city, isn't it? Um, I I came to the Mazzi Project last night, which is a fundraiser for homeless people to be dignified through food boxes containing excellent local produce given, you know, freely by the local suppliers. That's a really extraordinary thing, but it's very typical of what happens here. Do you think there's something special about Bristol? I mean, could could Mazzy Project, could 91 Ways
1: happen anywhere else? I think Bristol's an amazing city. I think we really think about what sort of city we want to live in. So 91 Ways, the full title is 91 Ways to Build a Global City. That's my ambition for it. Bristol has got such a great potential. Um, and, you know, we've got fantastic people here thinking about each other, thinking about... And food seems to be the central theme. And there are people sort of thinking about food as a connector, but also, you know, food as health. You know, where does our food come from? How can we think differently? How can we do things better? I think that, you know, Bristol is fantastic. But I absolutely believe that the things that we do here, and I absolutely believe this about 91 ways, can be a template for how other cities can work. Bristol can be a real model. Yes, this can happen anywhere. We're just got we're just a bit ahead of the game. we're like that. we're yes. very distinctive. <laughs> <laughs> what could it look like? What
0: is that vision, your global city? What would you love? Bristol to be? Say 10 years
1: time, what does it look like? I want I want every single person in Bristol to feel part of Bristol, to have an equal opportunity, to have a voice, to see themselves represented in every part of the city. I want everybody to be healthy. I want them to know where to access good food. I want them to know where to access friendship. I want them to feel really that they belong in this city. Let's go through some of your food moments.
0: Let's start with your father's indian baked beans which i have just had you've made them for me for breakfast oh my goodness i will be making these
1: forever well um these uh, my father's indian baked beans mean such a lot to me and we still eat them and and you know the the grandchildren in our family still make them It's such an important dish for me because it reminds me of the sacrifices my father made. So my father came to this country in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, at a time where actually there weren't many immigrants here. uh, He had fought for the British Army, so there was a connection. Uh, He had five small children. He had arrived in New Delhi from Pakistan as a refugee, and he really wanted us five children, his family, to have the best opportunity. So he made the long journey, and it was a long journey in those days. Mm -hmm. On his own, he left my mum behind with the small children, and he got a job in a factory because there wasn't there were no other jobs, and. At that time, you could only live, you know, in a house with five or six other people. And he lived with five or six other Indian men who were all working really hard, who'd made similar journeys. And they were trying to recreate the food that they had in India. And at that time, you couldn't really get very much either here. He longed for that food because that was such a great Mm. connection back, you know, to his homeland. So I don't know. They found these beans, you know, they look like beans that we make and lentils and pulses because that's what we eat. Uh, having opened the can, tasted them, thought, oh, my goodness, it's so sweet. <laughs> yes, <sugar laughs> we just beans. don't have that. Yeah. Yet they set about being really creative. You've got to hand it to them. Yeah. And they added spices and onions and tomatoes and turmeric and coriander. And they made this amazing dish. And it is delicious. So for me, it's delicious. I really think, well, it's very, it's very wholesome as well because you've got yes. this, you know, the extra spice in it. And it feels very warming. And when I eat it, I enjoy it. But I, I just, I think back to him, my father, and all those men who made those sacrifices and were alone in those, you know, homes looking after each other, nourishing each other, you know, trying to create the dishes from their homeland, um, but really working as hard as they could to make our lives better. And, you know, so I feel grateful every time I eat that dish. Yeah, that's, it's
0: a wonderful story. And I hear it so many times.
1: I remember talking to
0: somebody uh, who had emigrated to Australia from Italy, and he said that in the immigration camps, people were growing tomatoes and basil just so that it could smell of home. Uh, It's very powerful, isn't it? I'm wondering about the availability of some of the more um, exotic uh, ingredients. Uh, Kiki Paddy writes um, about agiri, and she's replaced it with bitter leaves. It's a fermented seed, isn't it? It's only really available in Nigeria. A lot of these recipes do use replacements, and I wonder if... There's some kind of ache that happens. Did
1: anybody tell you what it feels like to replace ingredients? Um, I think, you know, we're all trying to recreate the dishes from our childhoods, aren't we? Or from our, you know, grandmothers or from our homeland, you know. Um, you know, food is a, a cultural touchstone. So we're, we're always trying to touch that stone, if you like, you know. Um, so And sometimes we can't get the ingredients. So we have to, we're trying to find something that feels feels similar. Um, and you know, even that is something. It's about you know, we may not get the whole feeling, but we get some of it. Because also, Jilly, yes, we want the taste to be the same. But sometimes it is the mere act of cooking it, yeah. and and remembering how it was cooked. So it doesn't have to be identical. I mean, my mother, you know, the da that I make. It will never taste like when my mum cooked yeah. it. Or in the book, there's a green uh, chicken that my elder sister used to make. I could make that a hundred times. It will never ever taste the same. But I I'll, I'll make it. I make it, and I and I I relive the memory of being with her by her side when she made it, and and also the times of happiness, you know, the laughter and so on. And for me, that's that's. Enough. I'd love. To, I'd love to taste exactly the same. But it's also the love that's attached yeah. to that uh, recipe. So you know, we can't get everything all of the time. I have to say that you know, I mean, when my mother came to this country, you couldn't get quite a lot of the spices. But she used to go back to India regularly, and she used to smuggle those spices in. <laughs> I hate to say it, and I don't want the police knocking on my door now. It's a bit belated, but you know, literally, literally, she used to she used to wrap the sp- spices in her clothes... And, and sew them in. She couldn't get them. I mean, she must have smelled like turmeric and, and garam masala all the time, you know. But she did because she couldn't... She didn't know if it was... I think it was probably legitimate, but she didn't know. But she just desperately wanted to bring those spices home. And she used to bring things like, you know, whole pine nuts. And um, we used to love it. When she opened her suitcase and, you know, when she took her clothes off, we like, yay! <laughs> you know, it's our Christmas again. You know, it's wonderful. So... You try and recreate it, and part of it is the taste, but so much of it is the story that goes with it and that memory. Yeah,
0: and I suppose the loss as well. You know, loss has a flavour, doesn't it? Um, Something else that you made for me this morning is Hannah Ahmed's um, Somali crispy fried badja. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely delicious. Um, This is a, a really sad story. Tell us about this as your second food moment.
1: Yes, I, I dedicated this Pajia um, to uh, Hannah. Um, and I think when I first started 91 Ways, one of the first communities I met was a Somali community. And uh, because we have a lot of, uh, as probably the uh, highest language spoken in Bristol, is Somali. So um, I went to meet these Somali ladies and um, they took me straight away into a cafe, you know, hospitality, food, that's a first thing you know and uh, they said come on let's go and eat together and they took me to this cafe that was behind uh, this shop that was selling clothes which was very interesting and there was a lady making food and she made she was making uh, uh, what I thought uh, will look like a samosa and they called it sambusa firstly and I thought whoa I didn't really realize that there was a connection in in that way between Indian and, and Somalia. And, and you've got this you know you've got this actual samosa that they call sambusa you know and I thought well it's exactly the same food and she was making also Pajia. so Pajia, we have that in India in we have bhajia, we make it with lentils Mm. and spices and coriander and so on we might know it as bhaji's you yes and and bhaji's yeah um we make it with onions mm. and and other and vegetables so different parts of india's would have in Gujarat's bhajia, in punjab it's bhaji in in um and in somaliland it's bhajia, but it's made with um uh, black-eyed beans And um, and I remember tasting them and I remember just the word and I felt I felt immediately connected to this community. I thought, well, we've got a connection, not just with food. We must have a heritage that goes back together, you know, in the past. And uh, and I was surrounded by these women who were laughing, eating. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, these amazing women, Hannah. Uh, Was just uh, a beautiful woman. She was firstly, she was beautiful. She was physically beautiful, but she was beautiful in the sense that she'd walk into a room and she'd light up the room. And she, I remember sitting talking to her, and she said to me, "You know, I wear a hijab, and um, and when I walk down the street, I feel really invisible. People don't know who I am." And uh, she said, I wish I could tell them. And I said to her, come and, come and do an event for 91 Ways. Come and talk about who we are. Because we do these pop-ups and um, they are um, uh, supper clubs, but with a difference. Uh, the difference is that it's always a member of the community who is cooked and tells their stories. So it's not just a dinner. It's actually you learn about the community. You get that beautiful food, but you get the beautiful culture and heritage being told there as well. And uh, she came with some Somali ladies and she stood up and um, she talked about what it's like to be a Somali woman. And and she said, you know, we're strong. We work hard. We look after our children. We have the same ambitions as any other woman. We want our children to do really well. We want to do well. And uh, we're here and we want to be part of the city. And everybody just clapped. It was just amazing. And, um, you know, she just she she left such a lasting impression on me. Sadly, um, during lockdown, she passed away. And I was so upset by that because she was very young. She left young children as well behind. And I thought, I have to put something. I have to put her story in the book as a legacy for everybody to know that you might see people walking down the street. And you think you have nothing in common with them. We all have things in common, And the most thing that we have is our common humanity. And Hannah taught me that. It's an incredibly sad story, but
0: a wonderful legacy about the importance of cultural practices. Um, And your third food moment is, is is a big leap. And I'm thinking about... The kind of the religious aspects of such a mix of of cultures. I mean, we were talking about, uh, you know, whole pigs uh, cooked over a pit in in Spanish town, Jamaica, in your third uh, food moment. How do the Muslims in your community handle
1: those kind of conversations? Do they ever come together over food? Oh, Absolutely. The whole thing about 91 ways is everybody comes yeah. and and otherwise we'd be just talking to the same communities exactly. and we have 91 language communities we want every one of them to know about each other so we'll take Somali women or uh, women from Eritrea and people from India and Muslims and Hindus to uh, another part of Bristol to meet you know the Jewish group uh, Mal- Palestinian and so on that is the idea you know and uh, although you know there are religious practices and you know um, and uh, some people may not eat, will only eat halal food they welcome learning about each other you know the food is there to enjoy but it is the catalyst for that yeah. conversation it's the catalyst to make those connections and and you know people are so giving that there's always alternatives you know people have go really out of their way to make the food right for everybody i mean you know we've um we had an event at the hint temple and and uh, we and a refugee group of women came and they were all Muslims and um, they it was all vegetarian food yes they ate that food and really enjoyed it but you know towards the end they stood up and and we weren't sure we thought well will they want to know about hinduism it wasn't about hinduism it was about a space that we had really there for it and we wanted to share the food that we eat and they stood up and they said we would love to look around the temple because we want to know more about what you believe and i was just like this is amazing you know and so it was the the um priest uh, the pundit taking the muslim women around the um temple and showing them around and saying oh this is lord shiva and this is you know krishna and this is what believe." and they were just loving it and and you know i think if you make those possibilities happen people are so open yeah like, yeah. People really want to learn, they want to know about each other. People want peace as well, you know. Yes, they really do. So yeah, so tell us about the your your third food moment, the, the jerk marinade. Oh yes. Wow, well, who doesn't love jerk chicken or jerk? pork you know I mean I was introduced to it here um, by Marty I've never tasted anything like it I thought I tasted it before and of course you know uh, if you speak to Marty you know she she's really really careful She, she she will not share her recipe with anybody and so I don't know how I prized it out of her it's in the book don't tell anyone else okay that's what she said I think she hasn't forgiven me for having that weak moment where she shared it it with me but I think what is really interesting for me is that you know we all know about jerk chicken we've seen it and so on and jerk marinade but the story behind it is so interesting you know every food that we have has a story connected with it you know food is not just the sum of ingredients and I think we need to know that so with jerk chicken what is so interesting is that when she went back to Portland, Jamaica, she found out actually, why is jerk chicken made in that way? It's made in that way, because when the slaves were trying to flee from slavery, they, they want, they had to eat. So they used to dig a pit, and they would cook below the ground so that no smoke would, Mm. um, you know, uh, escape. And so that, you know, nobody would know, soldiers wouldn't know where they were. And that pit and that way of cooking is the jerk way of cooking. So that whole... You know, that incredible food that we love has this historical story, a story of freedom, uh, a story of fleeing oppression and a story that's so tied to... Jamaican history. And I love knowing that. So now when I eat it, I appreciate it even more. And I'm so grateful when Marty and her family have have shared this with me, because I know what it means to them. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about, you know, so
0: many of the problems of our food culture and our health and the problems with the planet have to do with the opposite of that, not paying attention to where your food comes from, what you're eating, the time you're taking to eat it, eating on the run, Not eating at a table, eating in front of the telly. All of those are so opposite to that experience of really understanding and, and tasting and 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 connecting with your food. Your fourth food moment is is an example of that again,
1: um, and very fitting for the times that we're living in right now. Well, first of all, one Ways is about creating those times, that, that space for people to come and sit and talk. Because we don't want anything else, we just say to them, just come and sit down with us. Recreating those opportunities for people to come and connect when sometimes in their home, they're running around after the children, and there's many things to do, You know, when you're at home, you're always thinking about what you need to do. So it was really important that we create these opportunities for people to come and just sit. I wanted to share a story with you, which I think really resonates right now. Obviously, all stories of war should resonate with us because they should be for us to think about how to stop those things from happening. But I met um, a Bosnian family, Stella and Dino, uh, a few years ago. And Dino is a young man, and he loves cooking, and he loves food. And somebody said to him, you have to meet Kalpner and uh, and somebody said to him, you know, me, you have to meet Dino. So we went to me and we spent the whole afternoon talking about food. I had no idea about Bosnian food, by the way. And what is great about him is that he he did a supper club for us and he stood up and talked about the fact that people don't know anything about Bosnian food and of course the influences of the Ottoman Empire, influence of Persian food and so on. It's beautiful food. It's, It's incredibly different. I mean I could eat that food all the time. What I love about Dino is that he talks about how his food is so connected to where he was born and connected to those stories and those stories aren't or positive, but how he's turned that into positive. So he grew up in Mostar, uh, just when the war had broken up. He was only a child then. He grew up to the sound of snipers firing around the, the town he was born in. He grew up to soldiers coming, and in fact, soldiers came and marched them out of their home. So he and his mother had to flee. And What was terrible was that until that moment, they had lived cheek by jowl with their Muslim neighbours, with all the different neighbours, and there were no differences. You know, they were like brothers, but then the war happened. And they managed to come to uh, England. And he says, you know, what that time taught him is actually, you have to come together, you have to understand that, there are no differences, that actually we are the same. And he uses food and his story to tell people that peace is really important, that we have to remember we are all human beings, that we cannot go back, we shouldn't go back to that time when we are fighting each other. This is a young man talking about peace. It's so inspirational. And the food that he makes is this beautiful... uh, they are called peach shaped pastries breskvice. And they're peach shaped, they've got no peach in them. He keeps telling us they've got no peaches. But he remembers that his grandmother uh used to, you know, get them for him, but it was a it was a lady across the road who says Denka, who used to make the uh, the pastries breskvice. And when his grandmother used to come and visit, he used to say to her, Could you bring some of those? please could you ask Stenka to make some more? So this poor Stenka, who was quite elderly, would spend the whole day making a whole box of these, you know, Tupperware full of these. And they're quite laborious, but really beautiful. And, you know, and the grandmother would bring them to the UK. And, um, and um, he's, you know, and one day he said to his grandmother, look, could you ask Zdenka for the recipe? And Stenka gave him the recipe. And she said, look, this is how you make um, the, the peaches. And she, he said... Uh, what you need to do is make them exactly like this and you need to add in some love and they will be perfect. And he said, you know, he's been making them ever since and it's very sad that Zdenka passed away uh, very quickly after she shared the recipe with him. So he's really grateful. But those peach-shaped um, pastries mean so much to him they represent his culture they represent because they're very beautiful he loves the fact that he can show them to people and say you see you think you know about Bosnian culture and Bosnian food look at these and they're very intricate and lovely so I think that's his way of saying look you know find out more about us uh, we're not all the negative things that you might have heard of them we are much more than that. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Food FM, the online radio station and global
0: podcast platform which aims to change the world through food. Do get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram and at Jilly Smith on Twitter. And you can sign up for my newsletter at jillysmith.com. I'll be back next week with Ella Risbridger and her Year
1: of Miracles.